0: Parkview Church, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is my second to last sermon here at Parkview. And so it's a joy that we continue our series in the book of James. Let's open our Bibles to James 1 this morning. James 1. And we're thinking together through the whole of the book of James, this theme about spiritual wholeness is what one scholar says the book of James is all about. What we call whole discipleship here at Parkview. And today we will see that whole disciples... Both hear the word and do the word, hearing and obeying the word of Christ. As a husband, married for 11 years, I've learned one thing thus far. It's not enough to simply hear Claire say, the dishes need to be washed. If I nod my head in agreement but do nothing, that's insufficient. What I need to do is hear and do the dishes. That's what love does. If we love Jesus, we talk about a whole disciple is the one who learns Jesus, loves Jesus, lives Jesus. If we truly love Jesus, we will live for Jesus. We will obey his word. In fact, our pastor this morning in James 1 talks about that it's a real possibility to be deceived into thinking. It says it in verse 22. We can be deceived into thinking that we're really great Christians who really love Jesus and yet actually not be sincere true Christians because we don't put into practice the word that he has spoken to us. It is one area of spiritual brokenness that James is addressing. He'll address favoritism of the rich over the poor in chapter 2. He'll address angry speech in chapter 3. He'll address worldliness in chapter 4 here the split loyalties, the spiritual brokenness, the, the non-wholeness of coming to church on Sunday or being in a community group or one-on-one, being raised in a Christian family, wherever, whatever context it is, situation where you hear the words of Jesus, but yet not obeying the word of Jesus. That is a real spiritual problem. And so this is Makes sense to us if we just think about the whole Bible. Think about the book of Deuteronomy, God's old covenant people. Deuteronomy six, the famous thing. Maybe many of us hear the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You must love Lord your God. You must love your neighbor. Hear and love, do, act, obey. It's a major thread through the entire of Scripture. God's people are to be the sort of people who hear His Word, receive His Word, and then put it into practice and obey. And that's what we're going to learn from James 1, 19 to 27. James 1, 19 to 27, the one thing I want you to walk away with is this. Because of Jesus, because of Jesus, we can be people who receive and obey God's Word. Because of Jesus, we can be the sort of people who receive and obey God's Word. Last night, I had the strangest experience Uh, I I just was not, ah, the sermon was not really coming together. And maybe you should never confess this as a preacher, but there I was Saturday night, ah, just couldn't. I just, ugh, just was not feeling it. And it almost was like Jesus tapped me on the shoulder and says, hey, can I get involved here? Because when we talk about obedience and commands and obeying God and devoting ourselves to God, and so much of James is about this, right? Over half of the book is commands to do we can forget the resources that Jesus himself provides us to lift us into obedience. Jesus wants to do this in our church. He wants to do this in Parkview. And so let's let's listen, let's hear his word, and let's ask for hearts to obey. James 1, 19 to 27, starting in verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, and goes away and at once forgets what he was like but the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart this person's religion Is worthless. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is God's word for us. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word. You have now spoken. We have literally our eardrums, we've heard your word. But now what you're about to say to us is, it's, it's not enough just to hear. We must obey. We must obey. And we know, we know that every command you give, every call to radical obedience and sacrifice, you provide the resources in the gospel of Jesus, your son, to compel us, motivate us, and strengthen us for this sort of discipleship. So we just ask for, by your mercy, pour out your Holy Spirit on us, needy, broken, faltering, failing, often disobedient disciples. Renew us, cleanse us, lift us into that place of renewed commitment, of new joy and obedience, of new power and obedience. Do that, Lord. Do that by your Holy Spirit's power. May we be a church all together, a whole church that delights in your word and loves to put it into practice, Lord. Make us these people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, right, Claire says, do the dishes. Not enough for me to just hear. I have to hear and do the dishes. Because of Jesus, we can be people who receive and obey God's word. James 1, 19 to 27, shows us three things Jesus does for us. Three things. Jesus, number one, saves us from our anger, verses 19 to 21. Number two, Jesus liberates us to obey, verses 22 to 25. And third, Jesus humbles us in order to exalt us, verses 26 to 27. Saves us from our anger, liberates us to obey, humbles us so that he might exalt us. Look, look at the first point together. Jesus saves us from our anger, verses 19 to 21. Look closely. Oops, I might have spilled myself there. Look closely at verse 20. The anger of man, this is amazing. The anger of man, Parkview, the anger of man does not, does not produce the righteousness of God. Your anger, my anger, does not ever advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. We might say, hey, there's righteous anger. Is there not, Wade? Yes, there's righteous anger. We've seen our Lord Jesus in the Gospels express righteous anger. Yes, there's a time and place to be rightly angry against the things that hinder the glory of Christ advancing in this world. James is not talking about this, that sort of anger. He's talking to Christians who are in spiritual meltdown. These Christians have huge problems. Relational friction through angry speech. We're going to hear more about it in several weeks in chapter 3. The use of the tongue like fire that's destroying this Christian community. And so James says that these Christians struggling with anger to you and I with our anger problems. He says, and I, you love you James, just right to the point. Be quick to listen. Slow to speak, slow to anger. Be quick to listen, lean into that conversation, care more about what the other person is saying than your response to them. Be slow to speak, don't let your rough draft emotional thoughts just vomit out of your mouth. Slow down, do some Google document or Word document editing in your mind and heart before you speak. Be slow to anger. And why? Verse 24, because, it's a a causal word, because the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Yes, again, there's time for righteous anger. But for most Christians, I would think, most of us in this room, most of the time, we get angry because what we desire in our life gets blocked. What we want for our life gets hindered. And that is not righteous, that is not right, that is not pleasing to God, it says in verse 20. Just think about why you get angry. Very simple illustration here. Why do you get angry when you're driving? It's not because that person in front of you in that Honda Civic who's going 13 in a 25 is hindering the cause of Jesus in the world. You get angry because that person is slowing you down to that appointment or doing what you want to do in your life in your time frame. Brothers and sisters, the same principle runs through the reason why you and I get angry with a spouse that doesn't care for us the way we deserve to be cared for, angry with a coworker or boss who does not respect us or dignify us or empower us the way we think we deserve to be dignified and empowered, the reason why you and I get angry with our kids when they misbehave because really primarily our fear is about our reputation in the eyes of others more than their godliness and growing in maturity to be seen as a great mom, to be seen as a great dad. The list can go on and on. What gets you angry, Parkview Church? The anger of God, the anger of man does not produce and accomplish the righteousness of God. So thank the Lord for, Jesus, for James's direct honesty to us. I mean, how many of us have said something so foolish and hurtful? Have you ever said this before? Man, what was I thinking? Well, James would say, that's it. You weren't thinking. You weren't thinking. You weren't slowing down enough to think deeply about your response to that person or that situation. Your rough draft emotional anger just poured out from your heart. Anger is a problem of your heart. Yes, situations and people might give the opportunity for your heart to be exposed, but it is a problem of the heart. And therefore, what is the solution to anger? How do you overcome, how do I overcome our temptation that we just learned last week that if not checked and resisted is from sinful desire that will lead to sin and give birth to death? And we all know how our anger has brought death, harm, destruction, into family members or coworkers or whoever it is in our lives, or we've been on the receiving end of such anger. The solution, brothers and sisters, to anger is Jesus. It's Jesus. Because in his word, he never identifies a problem in us that he himself cannot cure with his power and mercy. Look at verse 21. Verse 21, therefore, because of Anger not producing the righteousness of God. Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. Put away. It's the image here of peeling off clothing almost like you've jumped in a mud pile. And it's time to get rid of all of that clothes, all of that stain, all of that those ruined clothes, to peel them off, to put them away, to throw them in the trash, and to move in a different direction. Put away that filthy anger. Isn't that amazing? Anger is rampant wickedness. We might think of certain categories of sin as being rampantly wicked. I wonder how many of us walked in the room this morning thinking, my anger problem is rampantly wicked in the eyes of my Lord. But that's what the Bible says. It's a language of repentance here, Park, for you to put away, which is itself, repentance is a gift of the gospel of Jesus. Jesus, do you know this? You you have to believe this. If you're going to make any progress, we're never going to be perfect in our anger, but to make progress in our battle against anger, you must believe that this repentance of putting away, it's a work of Jesus that he himself is committed to in your life. That Jesus wants to come and turn us away and to peel off that dirty, nasty clothing of our life and to put on something New, and what is the new thing that Jesus wants to put into your life? Verse 21, the next phrase, receive with meekness the implanted word, and this word is able to save your souls. Anger, like any sin, it endangers your soul, yet the saving rescue of your anger is the implanted word. This phrase here, implanted word, is referring back to verse 18. If you remember from last week, verse 18 talks about how Jesus gives us new birth. We're brought forth. We have new life through the word of truth. Elsewhere in the New Testament, word of truth is always linked to the gospel. You can see that in Ephesians 1, Colossians 1, and 1 Peter 1. So here, James is saying the way that you are set free and rescued from your anger is the implanted word Jesus plants his. Word of the gospel, this message of God's saving mercy through Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf, he plants that deep inside of us so that we might turn away from, put away our anger. To receive is to then let it have its full effect. Let the gospel, let the work of Jesus do its ministry in our hearts to have its full influence in our life. I made a fascinating discovery this week. That word meekness is, is so important. With meekness, receive the word of the gospel. It's the same word used of Jesus in Matthew 11 when he says that he is gentle, meek, and lowly in heart. Community groups are going through a book entitled Gentle and Lowly, where it's explaining that in Matthew 11, we see the deepest core of who Jesus is towards you is not harshness. And demanding. He's not your varsity basketball coach who's screaming at you and shaming you to be a better player. Jesus, the most accessible, gentle, kind, compassionate person toward your burden, toward your anger. If at the bottom you don't realize this is who Jesus is for you in your struggle against anger, you cannot make progress. And overcoming your anger, it is his meekness, his gentleness, the high and holy Jesus is meek and lowly toward you in your battle against anger. Just think about what the gospel presents to us about Jesus. You realize that at every point in situation in our life that produces anger in us, Jesus never once got angry Jesus had his name dishonored publicly. But he did not lash out in anger, but silent trust in the Lord who is just and who would put things right. Jesus knows what it's like, parents, to finish a long day of work and you're tired and exhausted and you want to rest, but you only go to a different place, home, to be greeted by more needy, complicated, struggling people who need your help. How often, parents, when we're tired, is that where anger comes out? But Jesus in the Gospels, exhausted after a day of serving and blessing and loving, and he gets home, so to speak. And he has compassion on the crowds because they were lost and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus knows what it's like to be misunderstood. He knows what it's like to have words taken out of context. He knows what it's like to have his life taken by violent force. And in all of these things, all of these situations, he never once responded in sinful anger. Amazing. Jesus is incredible. He is quick to speak. No, we are quick to speak, slow to listen, quick to anger. Jesus, in his meekness and lowliness and gentleness as our Lord, is forgiving, compassionate, tender, quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. The only hope for our anger problem, Parkview Church, listen very clearly, closely. The solution to your anger problem is Jesus. Very practically, what this means is the most helpful thing this is what James is offering us the implanted word that you would receive with humility and meekness what the Lord wants to do among us Parkview Church is that we would very practically to overcome our anger that our heart would become more and more acquainted with what Jesus is like I don't know what this looks like for you in your life does it mean 15 minutes in the morning before work or on your drive to work, I know some of you listen to the Bible on podcast or on stereo. It's amazing. Great. Good job. Whatever it is for you. Maybe 15 minutes of just reading through the portions of the gospel where Jesus is responding to people who just so frustrating sometimes. You're like, Jesus, but he doesn't. Gentleness and compassion. To meditate, to soak your heart for 15 minutes a day in those sort of stories about Jesus. Or Again, in community group, we're, we're trying our best as pastors right now to help you grow in this, to know Jesus in this way. Just read through gentle and lowly, talk about it, confess ways you're not like Jesus, have others pray for you, and watch the Lord do his work of growing you into more compassion and less anger. Verses 19 to 21, Jesus saves us from our anger. He saves you. The implanted word which is able to save your soul. Your anger is such a disastrous problem in your life. And you know it. You know it. But the good news is that Jesus can rescue you from your anger. That's what James offers to us. That's the first point. The second action that Jesus does for us, according to James 1, is he liberates us for obedience. He liberates us for obedience. Verses 22 to 25. Now, the flow of this chunk of verses, it's pretty simple to understand. Look at this. Verse 22, primary command, right? Be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's kind of the theme statement of the whole book of James. Do the word, don't just hear the word. Verse 22, command. Then, verse 23 and 24, a preacher's dream come true. James actually gives you the illustration. Look, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror but then goes away and at once forgets what he saw. You're rushing to the meeting at work. You just had eggs for breakfast. You take a quick look in the mirror. There's a huge piece of egg on your cheek. You're like, okay, trying to tie your tie or whatever it is, okay? You hop in your car. You're driving on the way to work. You forget the egg is on your face still. You get to work totally embarrassed. How foolish would that be? How crazy would that be? For someone to look and see a piece of egg on their face in a mirror and then walk away and not do anything about it? That's nuts. But that's the point. It's crazy. It's nuts that there are Christians who hear the word of God and see problems in their lives like anger or like lust Or like pride. And they don't do anything about it. That's crazy. That's foolish. That's nuts. So then what's the hope for us? Because we've all done that. In fact, we're probably all doing it right now in different ways. The hope is verse 25 where James then goes positive. And he says, but the person who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the law of liberty, freedom, and perseveres in it, being a hearer who doesn't forget, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Obedience, very simply, obedience to God's word, his law of liberty brings blessing to your life. Very simply, it it provides, provides ways of greater freedom from the sin that so easily entangles and suffocates your fellowship with Jesus. How many of us here today could testify how taking a simple step of obedience to God's word saved you from spiritual disaster? Saved you from making a totally foolish choice that really would have hindered The closeness of walking with the Lord Jesus. Now, scholars clarify something very important here, and I want us to to press in. The connection between the perfect law of liberty, do you see that right in verse 25, and the implanted word, or the word of truth, verses 18 and 21, which is the gospel. The gospel and law. Theologians call this the interplay between law and gospel. The gospel, this is very, very important to get. Please listen carefully. The gospel is, is what we hear about how God liberates us from sin through Jesus. Jesus' perfect obedience, Jesus' sacrificial death, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, finished work of Christ, done. We've contributed nothing. We've lifted not one finger. We've not even raised an eyebrow. Jesus has done everything. That's the gospel. Full stop. Receive it as a gift with open hands of faith. But the law is hearing how God shows us how to live in that liberation in a way that honors and pleases Him. Gospel's what Jesus does or has done for us by grace. Law, the law of liberty, is what we must do for Jesus in response, not to earn grace, but because we have fallen in love with someone so wonderful as Jesus. This is the whole Bible of what it's really getting at, right? It's promised in Deuteronomy 30. I mean, the Old Testament is a story after story of God's people failing to obey him. So in Deuteronomy 30, God promises to his people there's coming a day where he will give them a new heart to obey him. Then it's picked up in Ezekiel and the prophets of Jeremiah. The new covenant promise is what it's called, where God will give his people a new heart and he would place his law within their heart so that they might obey him truly. And this is the obedience to Jesus, verse 25, the doer who acts brings blessing because it helps us walk into deeper fellowship and love for God. Not earning his favor, but we have the joy of knowing his favors already been given to us through Jesus and so we're free to obey. Obedience to the Lord is becoming the human you were meant to be. This is so important for us. Christian thinker Sam Alberry points out something important here. In our contemporary Western culture, what's often thought of as obeying God's command is a drudgery and actually hinders and harms our freedom. Because in a contemporary Western culture, freedom, liberty, is seen as the absence of laws and restrictions. We hear it all the time in music, popular. TV shows, Netflix, right? This whole sense of I'm free to be whoever I want to be. Nothing hinders my desire to express and pursue my self-directed pursuits in life. I can identify however I want. I can live however I desire. That's true freedom. But in the Bible, true freedom is not the negation of all laws, but the presence of the right sort of laws. I mean, anyone here so glad that there's a stop sign, a four-way stop sign at intersections? Instead of a, hey, good luck sign, maybe you'll make it out. That would be crazy. We love that law. Parents, you love the law in your neighborhood that says slow down to under 20 kids at play. Because if there's some joker smoker who's going 65, you hate that. That's crazy. The best sort of laws are given to protect and empower and liberate and give life to people. So it is with God. And so what we see in James 1 is Jesus is liberating us from the drudgery and pain and sadness and regret of living in sin. And we're set free to obey and become the people God made us to be in love for him and love for neighbor. It's totally brilliant. Jesus is totally brilliant. How good of him. How kind of him to show us how we live. It's not a free for all. It's not a choose your own adventure story where your desire for what you think is best for your life is going to clash with mine. But we can learn together in the church through the grace of Christ a law of liberty, a way of liberty, of of living that brings freedom and joy to our lives. Brothers and sisters, this is so important to understand. Jesus calls you to obey him because he loves you. Because he loves you. And so our obedience to him is a freedom. It is a gift. It is a joy. It is a pleasure. The pleasure of loving Christ and living for him. Amazing. Jesus saves us from our anger through his gospel word. Jesus liberates us for obedience through his word. And finally, we're going to see that Jesus is going to humble us so that he can exalt us. Verses 26 to 27. Now, I will just state it right at the beginning here. It's not immediately clear in the two verses. It doesn't talk about humility and exalt. We're talking about weight. I learned this from one of my professors, uh, Dan Doriani, who's doing just amazing work in the book of James and just was one of those light bulb moments for me in school to understand the book of James. James here is talking about true religion, right? Verses 26, 27, 26, if anyone thinks he's religious, 27. Religion that's pure and undefiled before God the Father is this. Talking about religion, right? The practical action a person takes to demonstrate their devotion to God. That's what religion is. But if we look at these, these three things, right, because there, there's three things that, that James calls us to obey, and the flow of it is if we're going to be serious about obeying the word, not just hearing obeying, James then in 26, 27 says, okay, if you're serious, here you go. Here are three tests. Here are three areas. If you want to prove and show you love Jesus by obeying his commands, verses 22 to 25, 26 and 27, here you go. Here's your chance. Show me the money. James is saying, number one, speech, verse 26, if anyone thinks he's religious but does not bridle his tongue, he deceives himself and this person's religion is worthless. Second area, verses 27, compassion to the needy, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, because in this time and place, widows, orphans, there are two categories of people that couldn't provide for themselves. Then area three, pure devotion. Godliness, right? Verse 27, and you keep oneself unstained from the world. Not worldliness, but Godlikeness, likeness Christ-likeness, character. So James is saying if you love Jesus so much, want to obey Jesus, here's your chance. Do these three things. Do these three things and you will prove your authentic love for Christ. So here's my question. Let's slow down here and let's take an assessment. Can we take an assessment this morning? How are you doing? How am I doing? Are you obeying Jesus in these three areas? Number one, speech. Think about the past two weeks. Any sarcastic, jokey put downs of someone in your family? Any passive aggressive critiques of a coworker? Any talking behind someone's back in a judgmental, critical way? How are you doing on speech? What about positively? Have you been using your words to encourage and strengthen others? who are discouraged? Have you been using your words and speech to honor and dignify those who are valued members of your staff team? Are you using your speech to build people up rather than put them down? Don't just hear the word, Parkview. Obey the word. Obey the word. God's word has a lot to say about how you use your speech. Jesus actually says, your heart is shown by your words, Luke 6. What about the second area? Care for those in need, in our community, how are we doing with that? How's it going taking care of that person in your community group who struggles deeply with mental health and is, quite honestly, it's a burden. It's a burden every week to care for them. Are you caring for them? How's it going in your willingness to befriend that weird, awkward, lonely coworker whom no one in your office treats with respect but you know Jesus is telling you to treat them with respect and dignify them? How's that going for you? How's it going in finding ways to serve those who are disabled or those who are elderly? How's it going in us caring for the unborn? How's it going in caring for the single mothers who struggle to make ends meet each month? Don't just hear the word, Parkview. Obey the word. Don't deceive yourself. Now, the third area devotion to God, embracing Jesus above the values and idols of. Our culture, I mean, think about our culture is bent towards shaming and anger towards those who fail you. Are you nurturing bitterness towards anyone right now? Are you living a lifestyle of forgiveness? Do you give others the benefit of the doubt in their actions and motives? Social media, how's it going for you in a culture that's addicted to rage and political division? How's it going for you as a Christian on your Facebook page speaking the truth of Jesus with gentleness and respect to those who disagree with you? How's it going for you as you value and express the mission of the gospel of Jesus above and beyond your own political party? In a culture that loves sexual pleasure, how's it going for you and those websites you are visiting on your iPhone, late at night, by yourself? In your room, in a culture that loves money, how's it going for you giving generously to a local church? Or in your bank statement this past month, is there a difference between how you are spending your money than how your non-Christian neighbor or friend is spending their money? Then there's a the simple Christian basics of living for Jesus in a secular culture that doesn't care about Jesus. How are you doing in your prayer life, in devotion, to the Lord, how are you doing in engaging His Word? Prioritizing the local church? Is there anyone in your life that you're discipling right now? Basic Christian stuff. How are you and I doing, living unstained from the world in our pure-hearted devotion to Jesus? How are you doing in those three areas? My assumption is all of us have failed in the past three weeks in every one of those areas, probably. To live up to the call of Jesus and his word. We hear his word, Parkview. But we don't obey. So then what is our hope for change? How can you and I live differently? It's the most important question that we can ask this morning. How can we change? What's our hope? Our hope, very simply, is given to us later on in the book of James. So we'll have to wait on that just kidding I'm going to go kind of top level here in the book of James here's what's going to happen this is to me it was amazing when I first discovered this I hope it is for you here's what's going to happen those three areas care for the needy speech and then godliness instead of worldliness okay James is now going to pick those up in the rest of the book chapter two right Christians are prioritizing the rich and influential above the poor chapter three disobedient in speech as Christians use their speech to curse and degrade other image bearers. And then chapter 4, instead of obedient pure devotion to God, James says in verse 4, we are spiritual adulterers with messed up desires, claiming faithfulness to the Lord, but we're actually spiritually in bed with the world and all of its values and idols. At every point, James will show us chapter by chapter that we are Christians who have failed in obedience to the word of God. And what did that drive us to? Chapter four, verse six, to the disobedient, angry, divisive, failing, disobedient Christians, James says, God gives more grace. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand and graciousness of God and he will exalt you. That's where the book of James takes us. And it's so important, and I wanna leave here Because as a pastor, every sermon I've preached here, I hope, I have tried, is to get us to the point to understand who Jesus is. And as we see how wonderful and amazing Jesus is, we recognize our sin and failure. And he calls us to obey. And yet we see the ways we don't obey. But right there is where the gospel is such good news for you and I that God gives more grace. It doesn't say God gives more rage towards failing disciples. He gives more grace to failing disciples. It is shocking that repeat offenders, repeat failures like you and I can be welcomed by Jesus Christ in his grace and mercy. That's how good the gospel is. And that's our only hope as we are humbled in our acknowledgement and awareness of our sin, that we are then driven to Jesus and He exalts us, He lifts us into a new reality with God, into a new power from the Holy Spirit to obey, into a new humility and tenderness and compassion to those in need, into a new way to use our speech, not in anger, but in building and edifying others. Only Jesus can make you a good and godly Christian only Jesus. Your effort can't do it. The world won't help you to it. Only Christ. Only Christ, Parkview. We are humbled in the awareness of our sin, but we're driven to Christ, and He exalts us by His grace alone. Praise the Lord.